Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Sam Cecilia is Chief Investment Officer at Host Plus, one of Australia's largest and most successful superannuation funds. With its roots serving the hospitality and related industries, Host Plus has a unique member profile with an average member age of just 37. As the leader of the investment team, Sam is also quite unique. Described by Sam as a polymath, Sam loves numbers, finds human behaviour fascinating and has a special affection for the beauty and precision of well-crafted language. While he certainly would not list this on his business card, Sam has a PhD in mathematical modelling and theoretical physics and really stumbled into finance by accident via academia in 1994. Twelve years later, he found himself establishing what would become one of the most successful investment teams in the country and a key supporter of Australia's then nascent venture capital ecosystem. What I really liked when researching Sam's background is that he's much less interested in listing his qualifications and much more interested in talking about the skills that have helped achieve success. Lateral thinking, intuitive reasoning, problem resolution and decision making under uncertainty. All of which have been required in very good measure over the last decade and a half in financial markets. Sam, it's fantastic to see you. Thank you for making your time available. Thank you, Catherine. It's my pleasure uh, being here today. I understand that you wanted to be an astronomer when you were growing up. What were you like as a kid? What were you like growing up? Uh, that's, uh, that's a good discovery. Um, as a child, I, I was obsessed with all things astronomy. I, I wanted to be an astronomer. And so I chose a, a study path in hard sciences, mathematics, physics, chemistry, and at university, I, I completed a PhD in theoretical physics and applied maths. But my ambition as an astronomer was never realised. Perhaps it was the, um, the confluence of lack of jobs in astronomy when I needed a job. Perhaps I realised that astronomy is practised in the dark and in the cold, right? Perhaps it was fate that I was offered a job lecturing at Swinburne University of Technology in the Department of Data Processing and Quantitative Methods. From that title of the department, I thought it was a role teaching mathematical computing, but as it turned out, the role was in the Faculty of Business teaching math methods to business major students. So for me, mathematics was the bridge, if you like, to cross over from science to business finance. But there's an unexpected benefit in having to teach business maths to largely disinterested business students. I, I guess it focused my mind, it forced clarity of concepts, if you like, it, it forced simplification of language and the need to explain concepts that are often difficult for people 
into simple plain English. Uh, and then about seven years later, I received a call from a recruitment firm saying that they have a, a client in the superannuation consulting business looking for someone with my attributes and simply asked whether I would like a real job. And I took a leap of faith and joined Towers Perrin, an asset consulting business where I learned about uh, what was a relatively new superannuation system. And I later joined Frontier Investment Consulting where I was assigned to advise a very small $1 billion super fund client called Host Plus. And as the saying goes, I guess the, the rest is history. I joined uh, Host Plus as the inaugural CIO in, in March of 2008. So I'm about to enter my 15th year. Today, House Plus is approaching $100 billion in size. And really, when I reflect on the sequence of events from childhood to today that nudged me from astronomy and physics to finance, all I can really say is that I don't have any, absolutely have no regrets. Well, and it seems like you you found your place in the world, given that I think Host Plus recently um, again topped the charts in the one-year performance league table and also retains its spot as the best-performing Australian super fund over 10 years. The thing I liked when I was looking around at some of your public stuff on your Twitter profile, you say that physics is easy, finance is hard. What's challenging about the work that you do? Well, <laughs> physics is easy because it follows the, the laws of nature, the, you know, the, the, the laws of the universe, and it's predictable. You, you may not have the right models to predict it, so you try again to improve your models. Finance is hard because it involves people and it involves different objectives, and it's not always actions for maximising outcomes. And so there's a whole set of things happening in the background with the planet's population that drives finance more so than the numbers and the mistake that people make, which is a lesson, a hard lesson learnt. You can have numbers, if you like, in physics and you can rely on them. You can have numbers in finance and you better keep checking that they're valid because things change, things change pretty fast. I must give a plug to... Uh, my deputy CIO in Greg Clark, who says that he moved from physics to finance because they both begin with the same letter F, and that's hilarious in itself. <laughs> in nerdy math speak, that's a hilarious joke. I wonder what you really love about the work that you do. As I said, you've you know been involved in this exponential growth in the size of Host Plus, but also the, the outstanding investment performance. What is it that has kept you really you know, happy and satisfied over these nearly 15 years? I think without doubt, it's knowing that the decisions and the actions we take today as a fund, as individuals in the, in the investment team, that those actions will impact the retirement outcomes of millions of Australians tomorrow. We have 1.6 million members, but when you think about their retirement and all their dependents, it's going to be millions of people. And really the best part of our work is that we are unknown to the vast majority of members. We can walk into any hospitality venue and be regular customers. And naturally, we're very proud of what we do, but there's no room for hubris. So 
you know, ultimately the, the most pleasurable part of our job is just doing it every day with that best outcome in mind. Maybe it'd be good to describe you know, what you actually do, because you don't make individual choices about individual companies or, you know, individual instruments. So it'd be good to understand what your job entails. And then, you know, when you're thinking about the sort of investments that you think are appropriate for the members that you serve, what are you looking for when you make an investment? As a super fund, we have a primary objective, and that's to maximise the retirement benefit of our members. And so ultimately, I'm accountable to the Host Plus trustee board, who in turn have a fiduciary responsibility to maximise the retirement savings of, of Host Plus members. So it's pretty clear to me and to the investment team that every investment we make needs to be aligned with that concept of making a financial return on that investment. But as a large super fund, we're best placed to be allocators of capital to fund managers rather than allocators of capital to individual companies or individual assets. Sure, we do some of those, but we're best placed to be allocators of capital to investment managers. It's it's inefficient for us to make every asset or security investment decision ourselves. And so our preference, as I said, is to allocate bulk capital to trusted investment managers that we believe are best placed to exercise their expertise in a particular area of investments. So let's segment the investments that we make into two portions, listed assets and unlisted assets. The listed assets at the end of the day are simply transactions in financial instruments or buying and selling shares on the stock exchange, for example, in in established companies. What we're looking to do there is to put a dollar in and get more than a dollar out. It's important at the same time, it's not all that exciting. On the other hand, when we're investing in unlisted assets, that's much more exciting. What do I mean by unlisted assets? Things like property assets, retail shopping centres, commercial offices, industrial warehouses, residential property or infrastructure assets like airports and seaports and toll roads and renewable energy. And another asset class that's unlisted is private equity. So unlisted companies at various stages of their maturity life cycle. So those unlisted assets, property, infrastructure, private equity, which includes venture capital, those unlisted assets are necessarily long-term investments. And Not only do they generate a financial return, but they also contribute to nation building. They contribute to strengthening the current economy by generating employment, say, or contributing to productivity. So unlisted investments have a much more profound impact on the community and on the economy generally. Without doubt, though, the most exciting area and impactful area are the investments that we have in venture capital. The venture capital is about nurturing a startup company so that it has the necessary guidance and capital to establish itself and grow into a bigger company so that it contribute to the economy of the future, if you like. And so when we think about our venture capital managers, what are they trying to achieve? Well, you know, they're trying to find ideas that people want 
and ideas whose, whose time has finally come and that the enablers for those ideas exist. But ultimately, they're trying to find an idea that can be commercialized by founding a company. And if you can get those three things together, then you have at least the start of what's necessary for venture investment. And then what's left is the quality of the founders. So you personally and Host Plus as an institution were one of the first to really embrace the potential on an institutional scale of of Australian venture investing. How much of that was driven by your personal belief and and how much of that was driven by the sort of uh, demographics of your fund, the fact that, you know, many of your fund members are younger than the average member in other superannuation funds? Great question. And the answer is, of course, you need both, right? But let's tear that apart a little bit. Let's say you refer to me, but let's refer to the investment team because collectively we have to have the same beliefs, right? If the investment team was at another super fund, we may not be able to act as we did in venture capital because their demographics and their cash flows would be different. So in order of importance, the enablers are the demographics, the long time horizon, and you know, the cash flow of the fund. We have 1.6 million members not retiring anytime soon because their average age as a cohort is 37 years old. So the runway they have to retirement is long, which makes it imminently suitable for long-term patient capital that's required for private equity and, in particular, venture capital, right? So we have the demographics and we have the time horizon and we have the cash flow to ensure that we can play that game. And so then it's down to personal beliefs. And so when you think about the history of venture capital in Australia and you think about what happened in the 1990s and what happened at the dot-com bust of the 2000s, if you go back and analyse the data, you will come to the conclusion that venture capital doesn't work. And the problem with that conclusion is that conclusion was right when the enablers weren't there, the technology enablers weren't there. In 1990, think about PCs. Think about PCs in 2000. Think about PCs in 2010 and now 2022, right? Think about PCs in 2050, right? And so when you think about it that way, you say it failed last time for any number of reasons, including the technology enablers are there. What's different this time? the technology enablers are better. If it fails again, then they'll be better still in another 10 years' time and you give it another shot, right? But we think the technology enablers were there predominantly because of the improvement in communications and networks and Wi-Fi and the the iPhone, which enabled a whole set of applications to suddenly exist and faster chip processing speeds so that we thought the conditions were right. And so we had a personal belief that this was the right time to give it another go. It does help a lot that both myself and Greg Clark, my deputy CIO, are physicists. It helps a lot because some of the technology is requires some rudimentary understanding of the technology and therefore the possibility. I mean, we're two, three decades out of practicing in that field, but at least we have a shot at reading the technology and thinking about it. 
in the absence of data. So we've made those investments and, well, the rest is history. It's been pretty successful to date. Out of all those unlisted assets you talk about, venture seems to be the one that benefits most from really constructive partnership. You know, I know Paul Bassett has, has called out, you know, yourself and Host Plus being, you know, real integrity partners. But I've also heard, you know, you talk about how important it is that there's really strong relationships between you and the venture managers that you invest with. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how your values and the values of Host Plus infuse those relationships and how you use that as a filter to decide who you're going to partner with? So we're a relationship-based organisation. It's really easy to do a Google search for venture capital managers and you will get an endless list of people that are essentially saying, give us some capital and we'll give you back a quarterly report. And if that's the way you want to behave as an investor, good luck with that. Our view is we establish relationships over many, many, many years. Some of them have been 10, 20 years in the making across the fund. In venture capital, we first put our toe in the water again for this time round in in 2015. So we're shy of 10 years. But you build up relationships with entities who know, and this this is the critical point, who know that you will provide future capital for future capital raisings. What is the incentive to misbehave for them or for us? It should be pretty small, right? It should be pretty small. So integrity, always do the right thing when nobody's watching. And so can we trust our fund managers to do that? If you can't, you will soon discover this and they're not going to get capital in the future. But you have to start from the position of saying, we've built a relationship up with these individuals. It's not the company that we build relationships with. It's not the brand or the logo. It's individuals within it, the people managing our money, if you like. So that integrity is pretty important. And you find that we get responsiveness because they know that we have an, I'm going to use the term, endless stream of capital. But you know what I mean? The superannuation system's mandatory. Money comes in every day. We get, you know, in excess of a billion dollars a month coming in. We need to find a home for that. It can't be all airports, right? We have to do other things with, with those investments. So integrity is a critical thing. And then the one that I value the most is transparency. And by that, I mean, we're all humans. We all stuff up every now and again. When you do, own it and fix it. That's all that's required to maintain a relationship. And we get, once entities experience the fact that there are no retributions when an error is made and it's confessed and it comes with a solution. That's the way we behave internally. That's what we expect our fund managers to do. So that's what we call trusted partnerships. Next time round, when they're doing a capital raising, it would have to be pretty dire for you not to want to at least entertain it or participate in it. So that must mean you you do a lot of work thinking about who you're going to partner with. If you think that, you know, you want them, you have a vested interest in those relationships being enduring and a sort of implicit promise that you'll continue to partner, you must spend a lot of time 
thinking about who are the right people to partner with. Are there particular relationships or particular investments that stand out in your mind that have been particularly successful? It's always hard to pick favourites because the, the venture capital firms that we have partnered with, for one reason or another, are peppered with great investments within it. There's one, for example, that was near and dear to my heart, which we no longer have, and that was an investment in a driverless car technology called Zooks. We don't have that investment anymore because Amazon came along and, and did a buyout of Zooks. You know, the potential for driverless taxis, driverless taxis is huge. That's one that always sort of sits in the back of my mind as it could have been greater. It was great, but it could have been greater. That's life. A couple that we have now in the in the solution to climate change space is particularly important, I think. Um, it's hard to go past investments that have the potential to be solutions to climate change. I mean, it's an existential threat to humanity. So if you have solutions to that, you'd like to think not much else really matters at the end of the day. We have two investments in fusion energy, one with Commonwealth Fusion Systems out of MIT in the US and one First Light Fusion Oxford in the UK. They both have different approaches to fusion, but let's be clear Whoever gets there first is nice for the science and being a former physicist, I can understand the appeal to want to get there first. But from a commercialization perspective, there will be a plethora of these. Whoever comes first, second, third, 10th, 50th can still be a viable operating company in their region, in their continent or what have you. The chances that the planet allows one firm to control fusion is zero, right? So we're very happy with those investments. And then there was one that's appeared in the media today that we've had for quite a long time in the biomedical space, Vaxis, for example, is it offers vaccine patches that you put on your skin and it avoids using needles. And of course, that wasn't that topical six years ago when the investment was first made, but all of a sudden you can understand why it's, it's pretty important if Vaxis can, um, can start shipping, especially for solutions for third world countries. I'm so glad that you've raised these climate-related technologies because I think you've been pretty vocal that your focus is generating returns for members. You know, you're not about generating goodwill or headlines. You're about focusing on the financial returns and yet you know as you say there's a whole lot of investments that you've made including that the fund that I'm tangentially involved in the scale artesian female leaders venture fund and so I'm interested in how you think about making investments that do have a, a sort of positive impact in some way and how you make the assessment of how important it is to have that additional non-financial return delivered as well. But the two can't be divorced. When you put a dollar into the economy, there are consequences. It generates employment or it deprives employment. If it's a robot solution, say, right? You put up buildings and infrastructure assets, that's nation building. You're contributing to the current economy. You invest in venture capital firms, that's the economy of the future. Yes, you want returns from all of those, foremost and uppermost, 
but you can't divorce that from the good that it does to society. I mean, it's a pity that we need to use the language, we are in fusion to make money. Oh, and by the way, it solves the existential threat to humanity as a side issue. It's not a side issue. It comes attached with the investment. You can't separate the two. And so we're comfortable that where we're making investments for return reasons, that we'll also get the social good, any social good that's attached to it. Sometimes people have perceptions about you that might not be as uh, accurate as they could be. What, what are some of the things that might surprise people that don't know you very well that they might be surprised to find out about you? That's a great question. So, you know, initially people are surprised that my background was in physics and mathematics and not in finance, right? We can discuss the bridge from one to the other as we have, and that kind of you know, becomes obvious. But the thing that I think people find surprising about me is that I care a lot about written language. I care a lot about grammar. And for me, grammar is the, you know, the rules of engagement, if you like, with written language. And I spent a couple of summers when I was an undergraduate student. In fact, I, I, was a, I was an undergraduate student in my senior years. I spent a couple of summers as a proofreader that's a lifelong burden because once you learn how to be a proofreader and you get paid per mistake found, then you can no longer read a newspaper without wanting to pick up a red pen and circle the grammatical errors. And so when I read reports that come from any, you know, we can read to the cows come home in this business. When I see reports and I'm reading them, I'm tempted to always take out a red pen because all I see is the grammatical and other syntax and structure errors in the, in the sentence. So, you know, at a basic level, it's about punctuation. It's about spelling, right? But at a more complex level, it's about syntax and semantics. And the single one that gets me the most is that people forget that a company is an individual. So you don't say host plus have had a lot of success, right? Host Plus is an individual, has had, an individual being he or she is, not he or she are, right? And therefore you can, every time you refer to a company, BHP is doing a lot of work with mines, not BHP are doing a lot of work with mines. And so it irks me no end because that's the primary rule that uh, I see all too often broken. I feel a bit jealous, actually, of your board because your board papers must be a joy to read in a way that, that they often aren't. So um, they are lucky directors to have you. Let me just add, I, I, I never said I don't make any of those errors. Of course we all do. That's the human part of it. But I'm self-correcting my own writing in, you know, with that overlay. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? When I first entered this business, I was fortunate enough to host a visitor from Atlanta in the US, a colleague, if you like, from the same company. And I recall he said to me, you know, people may be nice to you today, but it could be because of the title you have on your business card or the power that's vested in the chair that you sit in. And he said, 
I should behave appropriately at all times throughout my career. And what really matters is if people say hi to you after you retire and you're no longer sitting in that chair. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that it could be that they've been polite to me because of the chair, but I'm going to behave properly so that they, they're polite to me after I retire. So I look forward to waving to people across the street uh, when that day inevitably arrives. One of your strengths is being able to make decisions under uncertainty. How did you develop that skill and... What advice would you have for others who, who want to be able to do that, knowing that the, you know, the world we currently live in feels like a highly uncertain place? One of the things that um, the discipline of physics teaches you is that it's the assumptions you make that often kill you. It, it's always the assumption that people made that led to a conclusion the conclusion was valid, but the assumption was wrong. In the hard sciences, when you have a lack of data, you stick the probe in and you measure some more data, or you do the experiment again and again and again to generate the data that you need, the clinical trials or whatever. Unfortunately, we can't really do that in finance. And so in finance, sometimes it's important that you make decisions in the face of uncertainty, especially when we're in uncharted waters that the world has never experienced this before. And so the ability to think, to do thought experiments, absent any data, is valuable. And not just an, in, an individual, but if a team of people can do that, it's even more valuable because of the diversity of thinking. And so you have a choice in finance when you don't have data. A lot of people wait for the data and sit by the sidelines. Meanwhile, events happen and opportunities are missed. Maybe sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing, right? But they feel that without the data, they can't make any decisions. So in, in other words, you fire up Excel to give you the model you need to make a decision. There's a lot of virtue in the absence of data to use intuition, to use logic, to use a whole set of scenario analysis to think about what's the most likely outcome and whether you're prepared to make a decision based on that set of logic, decisions under uncertainty. Uh, and the organisations that can do that do better and the organisations that can do that well do best. And, you know, we're fortunate that we have some good thinking people in the team, the investment team at Host Plus. And so we feel that on balance, we're happy to make decisions in the face of uncertainty, like when the global financial crisis hit or when the pandemic hit, whereas others are waiting for the dust storm to pass and that can take years. I've got two last questions for you. One is a couple of books that you would recommend that you really love. One of the books that I would recommend to people that are interested in startups, for example, is Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. Some of, of, of the listeners today may even remember books. They were so yesterday's technology, right? But Peter Thiel, if, if people aren't familiar with Peter, he 
was the co-founder of PayPal and an investor in hundreds of startups, I think, including Facebook from, from memory. Uh, but in, in the book Zero to One, Thiel takes a pretty good look at how to build companies that create new things. Uh, how do you go from nothing to something? How do you go from zero to one, if you like? Uh, and I think it's pretty instructive to read the book because it kind of unwraps the thought processes behind how most startup founders think and it gives people guidance to and a framework under which they should do some thinking if they're thinking of starting up a company. Uh, and inevitably, I think the conclusion was something like inevitably every great startup idea is based around a thesis that most people do not believe to be true. What do people believe that you believe is otherwise or the other way around? What do you believe that others would say is nonsense? And so if you can marry that together in an idea, then at least you have one key element of something that would be solving a problem or is disruptive to what's there right now. So I thought that book I would recommend. And the other one on a somewhat related topic to venture, believe it or not, is a book called Utopia for Realists. And Utopia for Realists is a, a Dutch author, Roger Bregman, and Roger Bregman uh, wrote a book about providing universal basic income and other incentives, making, making society overall better. But he referred to universal basic income as startup capital for every individual every day. And as utopian as that might sound, we may be forced down that path as a society, otherwise we, we risk civil unrest. So what are you really excited and optimistic about? There's a lot of doom and gloom scenarios going forward. Climate change provides you with plenty of them, but some of the consequences of climate change will happen well before the planet heats up to one and a half degrees or two degrees. As soon as the global temperature changes by, let's say, 0.1 degree, people will start moving from areas that are food growing to other that no longer are food growing to areas that are food growing. When you get mass number of people moving from location A to location B, you have a problem because there is no free land left on the planet. You must move onto someone else's land. That does not end well. Well before the climate kills us, there's a chance that we'll kill each other. And so when you think about the doom and gloom that faces humanity, you have to be optimistic in humanity's ability to solve problems and not kill themselves. Even if today that looks like economic madness or financial insanity or improbable from a political perspective. So I'm optimistic that we will act earlier than that death date, right? We have to act earlier. You have to be optimistic that things will be okay. Well, it's just amazing to spend some time with you and 
knowing that, you know, out of that more than $100 billion that you've got at your disposal, you're providing some of the fire starter to really ignite those companies and founders that are solving those really difficult problems. So I am just so grateful, Sam, that you've had the opportunity to um, share a little bit of your insight and wisdom with us. My pleasure, Catherine, and time. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.